0: I have absolutely no doubt that it's a group enterprise.
1: This has been a huge set of investigations. There's nothing more can be done at the
2: moment. No homicide is ever closed until everybody involved in it is brought to justice.
3: Inside this book, there's a specific picture of David Norris. They say, it's crazy, but that's the man I saw in the bus.
1: I have absolutely learned to say never say never.
4: The events in Dallas this week have prompted a wave of these demonstrations. Black lives
0: matter! Black lives matter! People tend not to listen anymore to what the police say. They look at what the police do.
4: I'm Stephen Wright and this is the Mail Plus True Crime series. Stephen Lawrence, the murder that shamed Britain. Episode 6 Stephen's Legacy. In January 2012, Alexandra Marie felt a sense of quiet satisfaction. Nearly 19 years after she had witnessed the murder of Stephen Lawrence, she had flown to London from her native France to be a prosecution witness in the trial of two men belatedly convicted of killing him. But could Gary Dobson and David Norris have been found guilty earlier? When Alex gave evidence at the Old Bailey, the defendants sitting in the dock were two smartly dressed middle-aged men. Norris, in particular, had aged a lot over the years and didn't resemble his appearance from back in 1993 when he was a notorious teenage thug. Months after DCI Clive Driscoll and his team had secured murder convictions, Alex was leafing through a book on the Lawrence case when she saw a picture of a menacing-looking Norris from the 1990s. Inside this book,
3: there's a specific picture of David Norris who looks very aggressive with bad teeth. I was alone at home, and my heart started to beat, but, like, never, as never. And I was shivering. I said, what is that? What is that? That's the man, that's the man. And I was getting crazy on my own. I said, it's crazy, but that's the man I saw in the bus.
4: The moment Alex saw the photo of David Norris, she knew he was the man with the bad teeth who'd made her feel so uneasy all those years ago. Out of breath as he boarded a bus moments after Stephen's murder. Even though she told the police the man was suspicious, she was not asked to attend an ID parade of suspects. Norris was initially arrested just two weeks after Stephen's murder, but a lack of evidence meant he didn't go on trial until 18 years later. Alex... You might have picked him out back in 1993 if you had been invited to an identity parade.
3: Nobody told me that there was an ID parade. So it's just a long time afterwards that I, I I knew that. And I was very surprised and I asked the question, why didn't you ask me to come? to several people. I won as many people I could, saying, OK, why, what happened? And who, has, who is this man in the bus? And why I was told he was uh, just um, a passerby.
4: But in 2012, you'd seen Norris in court. Did you not recognise him then?
3: Just a very quick glance. And um, it was the picture uh, in which you can see His aggressive face and the teeth uh, that that makes me recognise the person. I mean, I had a shock when I saw the picture.
4: Clive, you know Alex well through her involvement in your investigation. It's quite disturbing, her allegation, isn't it, that she could have identified one of Stephen's killers back in 1993, but the police failed to follow up on her information
0: yeah I think there were there were there were many missed opportunities um in the initial investigation i I will say that Alex in you honorably know, was fantastic during my investigation. She was always extremely helpful. She's asked me many times why in fact she wasn't asked to go to a identification parade back in ninety three four five six seven eight I really don't know um i've I certainly looked into it and and her evidence hasn't changed she She gave that evidence when she gave her statement back in 1993. It's a missed opportunity, along with others.
4: Would you say that as a witness back in 1993, she was mishandled by the police?
0: I think one of the criticisms of of how we dealt with that back then was that we didn't handle witnesses particularly well. And in fact, I think there were other witnesses who felt that that the way they were being treated or maybe the way that we were contacting them was, was wrong. And in fact, some witnesses, I think to this day, probably wouldn't help the Metropolitan Police Service, which is, you know, sad and certainly not something that the Met or any police officer would want because witnesses are really your way to getting success for victims.
4: Alex was not the only witness who was mishandled in that first investigation, nor was the handling of witnesses the only mistakes the Met made. For five years, the police watchdog has been overseeing an investigation by the National Crime Agency into alleged misconduct in the early stages of the Lawrence murder inquiry. It has been probing why the Met did not make arrests for two weeks, despite officers repeatedly being given the names of suspects. The conduct of four former senior officers has been under close scrutiny. All deny any wrongdoing and their supporters claim they are the victims of what they call a politically motivated witch-hunt. Jack Straw was Home Secretary in the late 90s and was ultimately responsible for the Metropolitan Police and instigated the public inquiry into Stephen's murder. Despite the litany of blunders made by investigating officers and their superiors, not a single person in the police has been held accountable for the Lawrence case. That's quite shocking, isn't it?
1: No, it is shocking, but partly to do with the defects in the police discipline system. They're not perfect now, but I mean, one of the things I did was to establish the Independent Police Commission, which now has a new name, but essentially any serious complaint against the police is subject to wholly independent investigation. And that alone... The fact that decisions made by chief constables, for example, can be a subject to ongoing and contemporary investigation by an outside body changes how the police think about their accountability.
4: As well as the alleged misconduct in the initial Lawrence murder investigation, it was claimed in 2013, the year after the trial of Dobson and Norris, that the Met had used undercover officers to spy on the Lawrence family and their supporters in the aftermath of Stephen's death. On a Channel 4 dispatches programme, a former undercover policeman, Peter Francis, spoke about his mission to find out what he called disinformation to use against the Lawrences.
5: The family liaison officer, who was in the Stephen Lawrence's house, was taking all the details Of all the family members who were there, all the visitors who actually gave their details, and we were asked to comment on these individuals, whether or not, in their words, they were politicos or who they
4: were. Stephen's family were devastated by the allegations, which are the subject of an ongoing wider public inquiry into undercover policing.
5: Doreen Lawrence says this revelation hurts more than all the evidence of injustice and incompetence she's fought to expose. And well, I can't see the sense of why they had to do that. They haven't been able to explain to me the reason. These are
4: absolutely dreadful allegations and one can only think of the Lawrence family who suffered so much from the loss of their son and now suffer again hearing that potentially the police that were meant to be helping them were actually undermining That and the NCA inquiry into alleged misconduct in the initial murder inquiry shows just how toxic the Lawrence case remains even 27 years later. The Lawrence case may have been a disaster for the Met, but the force did do as it was told by the judge at the 2012 trial of Dobson Norris and continue to hunt for Stephen's other killers. But in August this year, Met Commissioner Cressida Dick made this announcement.
1: This has been a huge set of investigations, uh, five major investigations over the years, reviewed 17 times, uh, and in the last phase, which is since 2014, uh, we've been using every overt and covert technique available to us But we've come to the view right now that there are no viable lines of inquiry. There's nothing more can be done at the moment.
4: The Met had investigated the murder for a total of 27 years, but they had simply run out of leads. Clive, you were the DCI who led the successful investigation which resulted in murder convictions back in 2012. How did you feel when you heard the news?
0: I felt very sorry for the family because I know they still feel that they haven't received complete justice. And, well, I have to say that I think it's very difficult for them to believe the Metropolitan Police Service when they say they've done everything. Certainly the one thing, you know, that they are united on is that they all felt that they hadn't been kept informed. But without knowing what they've done or what they haven't done, you know, it's very difficult to comment on whether it's the correct decision, but I, I certainly know that it's very difficult for the family to, to actually believe that the Met has done, well everything it, it could do, but to what it said it's actually done.
4: So is that it for the Lawrence investigation? Is there any chance that more people could be held responsible for Stephen's murder? Nazir Afzal is a former senior lawyer at the Crown Prosecution Service.
2: No homicide is ever closed. No invest- homicide investigation is ever closed until everybody involved in it is brought to justice. We know for a fact, as the Daily Mail quite rightly points out, that there were a number of men involved in the attack on Stephen Lawrence. It wasn't just Dobson and Norris. There, you know, it wasn't two. There was five, maybe six. And the fact that there are still three or four potentially men who have not had their day in court, who have not had evidence put before a jury, is something that leaves a really bad taste in the mouth. As it, as it stands, there's still insufficient evidence to prosecute anybody else. But, you know, I'm a very optimistic person, as I was back in '93, and I will be again. I don't think that's the end of it. I think at some point, sometime, and, you know, I've prosecuted cases that would wait 20 years before somebody eventually admitted their crime. You know, there will come a time that somebody else would brought to justice, but the police, clearly within their rights, and, and I said, I think it must
4: be their duty to keep trying to do that. Clive, do you have any doubt that there are more people out there who are guilty of the murder of Stephen Lawrence?
0: They're all as involved and as guilty as the others, because they all knew each other. You know, they knew that violence would be used. So now I have absolutely no doubt that it was a group enterprise.
4: But no one else has been convicted. Clive, you left the force in 2014. The investigation continued after you left, but no one's really come forward with vital information, and Dobson and Norris have remained silent. There does seem to have been a bond of silence in the gang originally suspected of Stephen's murder, that they wouldn't grass each other up.
0: They've been a very tight unit since uh, 22nd of April 1993, you know. So I never personally felt, from what I knew, from what I read, from what I understood. I never personally felt that they would be running towards me to help me be successful in a prosecution.
4: From what you know about the case, what were the dynamics in that gang? You spent several years investigating Stephen's murder, irrespective of any subsequent convictions. And it must be made clear here that those not convicted of Stephen's murder maintained their innocence. Was there a leader? Was there an alpha male in that group?
0: Do you know, I think that's an excellent question, actually, because I think the leader changed in in that dynamics. I always personally felt that Mr. Norris was probably the one that was, um, even though he was probably the younger, he was the one that pushed himself forward. But generally speaking, I think that maybe it probably was referred to locally as the A-Court gang, and, and I think so, therefore, that, you know, Mr. Jamie Acor and Mr. Neil Acor, they would probably be the ones that, certainly in in the, in the that area, the Wellall Road area, I think people would have looked at them as being the the dominant members of that group of people.
4: People have said that Dobson may have been a weak link in that group, that he was the best hope of gaining intelligence on the other members of the gang. What do you think of that?
0: I, I could never understand that people possibly... Uh, looked at him as, as anything other than what he was, which was a violent young man. Uh, I, and for re- I can't answer that because I, I know I've read Reams within the police investigation that, that somehow he was the weak link. I, I looked at them as quite a quite a tight unit, really. For whatever reason, they stuck together. And, and you know, I didn't look at any of them as being a someone that might come and help me, that's for sure. And plus the fact anybody who watches that quite harrowing video that was taken of them in Mr. Dobson's flat, you, you couldn't say that any one of them was someone that you would have thought you'd been able to talk to on a one-to-one basis and maybe win them over.
4: You refer to Dobson and Norris as Mr. Dobson and Mr. Norris. A lot of people out there would just regard them as racist scum. Can you explain why you afford them that?
0: Because the police are the good guys. We must never, ever go down to a level wish we look like the bad guys. Mr Norris and Mr Dobson are people who, in my opinion, committed a grave offence and are racist. But they are Mr Dobson and Mr Norris, because the police are the good guys. We have standards, and certainly my team had standards. And in fact, we will never drop below those standards. So being respectful is one of them.
4: Most of the Acourt gang are now in prison. Dobson and Norris, obviously, for Stephen's murder, while Jamie Acourt is serving a nine-year sentence for drugs offences after going on the run in Spain. His brother Neil is back on the streets after being handed a six-year term in 2017 for his part in a drugs conspiracy. Luke Knight is the only one of the original five prime suspects to have stayed out of trouble. He, like the A Courts, denies any involvement in Stephen's murder. Only Dobson and Norris have ever been convicted of it. Could any of these men be convinced to talk again about what happened that night in 1993? After all these years, I doubt it. But new witnesses or a sudden change of heart from the convicted men might not be the only chance for further justice. Once before in the Lawrence case, scientific advances provided pivotal new evidence. Could the same thing happen again? Professor Angela Gallup, it was a development in DNA technology that enabled you and your team to pin Dobson and Norris to Stephen's murder. Is there any chance further advances in your field could yield further convictions.
1: Well I think I've learned over the years and as you can see from some of the some stuff I've been talking about here and from other cases science is moving on all the time and sometimes in ways that would be difficult to imagine several years ago and so I have absolutely learned to say never say never.
4: So perhaps all is not lost in this case who knows what could happen in the future but for now in your legal opinion Nazir is it the right thing for the Met to do to close this investigation?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The inquiry is never closed, but it's just inactive. I think this is the language they've used, which means if information does come to their attention, they will act upon it, but they're not going to proactively seek it. And I think that's, that's a pretty decent thing to do at this time.
4: I have little doubt that the Met continues to feel a sense of corporate guilt over the Lawrence case, which would have made it particularly difficult to shelve the inquiry Over the years, it has cost many hard-earned reputations and tens of millions of pounds, and there continues to be repercussions from it. It is a case which continues to cause consternation and sometimes panic in the higher echelons of the force. As Clive mentioned, the Lawrence family still find it hard to trust officers have done everything they can to achieve complete justice. The issues of racism in the Lawrence case are still relevant for the Met today. Stephen's case closed this August against the backdrop of a summer of renewed public interest in alleged police racism and wider racial inequality. The death of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, in the US, sparked worldwide protests that took on the name of the Black Lives Matter movement.
1: The sentiments may be familiar, but they now have renewed emphasis.
5: The events in Dallas this week have prompted a wave of these demonstrations.
4: The Black Lives Matter campaign prompted questions about how much has really changed in the Met since the McPherson Inquiry called it institutionally racist, and in British society more generally in the years since Stephen's murder. Clive, there's a lot of relevance for Stephen's case in the Black Lives Matter movement in connection to how the police treat people from ethnic minority backgrounds. What, for you, are the ongoing lessons of the Lawrence case?
0: I think that, you know, this is something... The the police and every other organisation, incidentally, will have to prove to the people who feel aggrieved, will have to prove to the people that don't feel that they're being treated fairly and that they're being not given the respect that they so richly deserve. And so I think that the, what the Met has to do, not make so many big statements about what they are doing, but show the people what they're doing. So I do believe the Stephen Lawrence story, the Stephen Lawrence lessons are as acute today as they were in '93.
4: David Michael, who we spoke to earlier in the series, was one of the founding members of the Black Police Association. So is it your view, David, that the Met is still institutionally racist, to use Sir William McPherson's definition?
5: I don't want to hang on to the Met is still institutionally racist, but I think before... The commissioner and the high command can sweep it away. They need to do some partnership work with a range of partners to say, well, this is the progress we've made. What is the best way? And do it in partnership. And don't just, the commissioner decides, I will just wave my wand and say we're no longer That's not the most productive in this day and age after everything that's transpired with Stephen Lawrence. And let's not forget Stephen Lawrence's murder was a racist murder that was dealt with abominably by the Met. One of the major flashpoints for accusations of
4: racism by the police in the UK, and perhaps especially in the Met, is the use of stop and search. Critics accuse police of racial profiling saying young men of colour are targeted disproportionately. Mr Straw, how have the police changed since you were Home Secretary in the late 90s?
1: And the police service's culture has changed dramatically in the last 25 years, and the current Commissioner of the Met, Cressida Dick, sounds very different from predecessor 25 years ago and is very different in all sorts of ways. So... It's a very, very different approach from the police. There are many more black and nation police officers than there were, although I remain concerned that progress in recruiting, retaining and promoting black and nation officers has not been as fast as I anticipated it should be. And there are still some areas of the country where the number of black and nation officers is lamentably slow. And there's also, alongside that, uh, issue, the fact that black and Asian people are more likely to be stopped and searched than others. Now, there, there are some reasons for this, which, uh, you know, not, not remotely, as it were, the fault or the responsibility of the police, but it's absolutely crucial that governments ensure that all members and sections of the public can have confidence in what the police are doing. For example, you end up in a situation where there are more black and Asian young men getting arrested and processed, that people understand the reasons for that and that the reasons are not to do with a sort of bias by the police.
4: The Met is much more diverse than it was 20 years ago, but it remains a mainly white police force. Its stop and search statistics show it predominantly uses these powers on black and other ethnic minority people. Is this evidence of the same racial bias the McPherson report warned against. In July this year, Stuart Lawrence, Stephen's younger brother, appeared on a news programme about stop and search. The Met Police is a huge organisation and in that organisation, the layers that it goes through, there is still some people throughout the layers that have a point of view that is not current with what needs to be going on today. Looking at it from the other side, David, how do the Metropolitan Police give the officers on the street the confidence to go out and enforce the law when they're under so much public scrutiny? Phone footage of a stop and search in the street could go viral within hours. It's difficult, isn't it? It's
5: challenging. So for me, I think they should. I think the operational commanders should be clear in their briefings. These are the laws you're upholding. These are the statutes that give you the powers Mm -hmm. to stop and search, to arrest, Mm -hmm. to use force. Mm -hmm. And as long as you do that, you have my 500% support. Mm -hmm. And you should have the support of all right-thinking people. But you can't. Give that bit of the briefing without giving the other bit of the briefing. Mm. Everything you do that I have briefed you on is lawful. If you go outside that, then my support
4: falls away. Do you think the Met can regain the trust of certain sections of London society who feel they're treated unfairly? What can they do to prove that they've learnt the lessons of Stephen's case? And that they're no longer institutionally racist as is claimed by some. The
5: Commissioner should evidence to London, to all all Londoners, all London MPs, all London council leaders, mm-hmm. this is the progress and this is why this is why I am professionally able to say that. Don't just say it's not a helpful phrase anymore or well, I'm not gonna use it. Because When her own officers, when the present Black Police Association are actually saying we strongly disagree with the commissioner, the Met still is. How does that help you Mm. as a commissioner? How does that help the Met? It doesn't.
4: One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast series is that I felt it's important for a new generation to know about Stephen's case, his legacy. That's obviously been given renewed poignancy this summer because of the Black Lives Matter campaign. I just wondered, Clive, what your views were on future generations of police officers and the general public knowing about what happened.
0: I personally believe it's it's incredibly important that Stephen's story is not lost. We can't afford to forget. We can't afford not to learn. There's been enormous strides made, honestly. there. I mean, there is, you know, some of the some of the move forward, have been quite stunning, really, as a result of Stephen. So whenever I think about Stephen Lawrence, I think of all the positive things that have come out such a tragedy. Whenever I think of the Lawrence family, I feel extremely grateful to them that they've made the police better. And certainly now, when people still to this day feel that they're not being treated fairly or granted the same opportunities to others, yeah, it's, I find it incredibly important.
4: The legacy of Stephen's murder continues to this day for Alexandra Marie. Her life has been changed forever by witnessing his death. For her, the last 27 years have been a journey of self-discovery and intense, undiminished interest in the issue of racism. In the years after Stephen's murder, Alex first moved to Reunion Island a multicultural French dependency in the Indian Ocean where she had a biracial son who's now aged 18.
3: In Reunion Island, what was wonderful is that you had all kinds of people. You had Black, you had mixed, you had Chinese, Indian people, so that was really, really great because they weren't racism. So it was an ideal island. Everybody was living together in harmony and you know, and that was wonderful for me.
4: And while you were there, you took a particular interest in post-apartheid South Africa.
3: Yes, that's right. And so I studied um, uh, South African politics and I did um, what we call a maitrise, um, in English exam. So about South African politics.
4: Alex later spent some time in South Africa before eventually returning to her native France. Alex... When did you realise the true impact witnessing Stephen's death
3: had had on you? The time of the trial in 2011, that was the most difficult, in fact, for me. Because I, I then realised that the impact it had on my life.
4: It had taken that long for you to realise, maybe through therapy or other... other
3: yes, tools. because I understood that I had a post-trauma, um, how do you say, a post-trauma disorder. Yep. And I had um, what we call amnesia, And it's just uh, at the time of the trial when I was able to read the um, testimony uh, again that all the, my memory uh, came again. And that was uh, like a shock. And then I was so uh, disturbed uh, that my, I had to take a week off from work because I was always crying.
4: Can I just ask you, what you've told your own son about Stephen's murder because I think he did go to the 20th anniversary memorial service with you what have you told him about what happened to you
3: had to explain to him um, that I was uh, in, involved um, in in the case uh, in uh, 2011 when I had to go to London. And so I had to explain why I had to leave because he was um, nine years old at the time. And then uh, so that was really um, disturbing for him because he was asking a, a lot of questions and uh, he was uh, quite destabilized, and um, so I, that's why I took him uh, for the 20th anniversary to explain more uh, about the story. And, um, well, he, he knows that he, it was really, it had a great impact on my life. But I tried to protect him because I didn't want him, for example, now he's 18, and sometimes I stop myself from thinking, OK, your son is a mixed race person. So but don't be scared. Nothing will happen to him. Uh, but I'm getting nervous sometimes because obviously I think about Stephen, who was 18. But I don't want that my son feels my fears, really.
4: At that memorial service in 2013, you did finally meet Dwayne Brooks, didn't you? How important was that for you?
3: That was very, very emotional. And I was was just um, so happy that he was alive and I had the opportunity to introduce him to my mixed-race son and uh, that we were alive. And it was a very, very powerful, one of the most powerful moments in my life. And we took a picture um, together with my son And this is a a picture uh, which I um, look at each time I'm. I feel sad when I hear about racism uh, and racist issues. Especially when I heard about the U.S. problem murders, murder problems um, recently, and I was, yes, watching this picture and said, "Oh wow, this is, this is good. We were gathered in, and alive and uh, able to share." Friendship.
4: It really is as if 10 seconds have altered the course of your life, Alex. How would you describe the impact that night has had on you?
3: It has changed my life because I then um, tried to repair something which um, did not belong to me. At the beginning, I had no link with race issues, I had no problems with that, and then it has become the, the main point in my life. Afterwards, it has taken me to, to places where I shouldn't have gone, and because of that, I put myself uh, into danger. And um, Since the, the murder, I've never felt uh, secure, safe anywhere. Because I knew that, yes, you can be just waiting for a bus and suddenly, from nowhere, someone comes and kills someone else. And that's, that's real. It's not something I watched on TV. The only person I, I was able to talk to about the, the case and my pain was Stephen himself. And I wrote him uh, books and books Because it was like he was like my imaginary friend. Uh, I wrote songs for him. Uh, I knew that he enjoyed running, so and I was and I ran myself. So sometimes I was running and said, Oh, that's for you, Stephen. some time uh, I really was in that mood of writing to him and uh, to heal myself. Now I'm I try not to think too much about him and um, but I sometimes feel the need to, uh, to talk to a specialist and then we go back to the trauma of the murder and then I try again. The specialist says that as long as I'm not comfortable, it's not healed. The day I will be able to think about the murder without being too emotional, I will be all right. But still, 27 years after, it's still not the case. And when I see racism on TV, it makes me cry. When I see people being killed, I cry, and uh, the, the last time I heard about what happened in the U.S., I just cried like a baby. It's still, it's so painful.
4: You've been listening to the final episode of Stephen Lawrence, The Murder That Shamed Britain with me, Stephen Wright. With thanks to the contributors in this series, Clive Driscoll, Alexandra Marie, David Michael, Nazir Afzal, Jack Straw, Professor Angela Gallup, Eddie Young, Phil Flower, and Sir Peter Bottomley. And thanks also to the producer of this series, Rosie Gillett.